we're not home, so your message will be recorded on our answering machine. Welcome to the past and talk to you in the future. It's so fun to hear that analog answering machine. I haven't heard that sound since I was a kid. Uh, composer Annie Gosfield came to us via landline because she has an interest in old technology. And uh, so that seemed like the right way to do the interview. And we thought we'd give you the whole experience and open up with that old answering machine. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted, and our guest on the program today is composer Annie Gosfield. And I opened up the program with a little bit of a piece of hers called Cranks and Cactus Needles that uh, she says was inspired by the sound of ancient 78 RPM records and the pops, scratches, skips, and warps that occur as they deteriorate. As to the title, Cranks refers to the crank handles of old record players that had to be wound up before a 78 could be played, and cactus needles are the sharp cactus spines that were sometimes used as cheap phonograph needles. I love that piece. I, I first heard it performed at the Tribeca New Music Festival many years ago and have been a big fan of it and of Annie Gosfield's music since then. It's a real pleasure to have her on the show, and uh, Stephen Rawson did a fantastic job with the interview and selecting the music. Annie, did you grow up in New York City? People always find this to be very disappointing. I actually grew up in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. My grandparents came to New York like during the Industrial Revolution, I'm, I'm the youngest of two youngest. And my father was actually raised in Chicago, but born four blocks from here. And my mother was born in New York. So there's a lot of New York roots. I'm very curious. Was your first musical love the piano or the phonograph? I think the piano. I mean, it was more the sound than the delivery system. You know, I'm the youngest of four, and both of my parents loved music, so there was a lot of music in the house. And it wasn't just background noise, or it wasn't something people argued over. In, in the 60s, a lot of people argued over music, parents and children. But it was something that was really treasured, and it was a very important part of life. Given a lot of your interests, I imagine the radio was pretty important, too. Yeah, well, we had this old tube radio, so it had this kind of beautiful, crackly, static sound. And I would listen to music on it, but I would also listen between the stations. You know, a lot of kids would get transistor radios, and, you know, some kids would listen to Top 40, and some kids would listen to the noise between the stations, and I was probably a little bit of both. But, you know, the radio also, even though it was maybe even a little archaic at that point, it was like this box that just tuned into all kinds of worlds. And some were musical in a traditional sense, and some were just more abstract sounds that were music to me. When did you get interested in radio concepts like signal jamming and interference? I wrote that used that kind of broadcast communication with lost signals and drifting satellites, which is for violin with the sounds of the Sputnik satellite. So that came about because I was just imagining this huge event in the 1950s where people like set up these radio setups to be able to listen to the broadcast from the satellites spinning around the Earth. So I love this idea of people all over the world who wouldn't necessarily be into electronic or abstract signals 
just listening with rapt attention and kind of closing this gap between music and noise. So that got me started on a series of writing music for instruments with electronic sounds, but for me the electronic sounds were sampled sounds. And, you know, sampled sounds of technology, because this is my fascination. So we fast forward to 2012 when I have a fellowship from the American Academy in Berlin. And I had gotten a tip from a very important curator in Berlin that the people who applied for the fellowship generally have very interesting research, except the composers. The composers really <laughs> didn't prioritize that. So I thought about it and I thought, well, how fascinating to be able to study jammed radio signals in this like center of the Cold War. Yes. Wow. So part of my um, fellowship in Berlin was going to the radio archives and listening to all different examples they had. And it was difficult in some ways because a lot was from World War II and I'm Jewish and, you know, you're kind of dealing with the Holocaust in the medium that is most expressive for you. So it, it, there's like, it's a, it puts it in a different context. Uh, I don't know if this is a funny story or not, but I got the CDs mixed up. And my partner, who's kind of a self-styled World War II historian, walked into my studio and he goes, Annie, why are you listening to a Hitler speech? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> like, oh, wrong CD, wrong jam radio CD. So the product of this residency was getting this great library of sounds. And I've drawn on it for years. And I've also been very inspired by the idea of these sounds and radio signals being so malleable and being distorted, you know, coupling these kind of these collisions of sounds together. And that also can relate so much to the compositional process.
So not only did you get to go to Berlin to the radio archives to study jammed radio signals and gather samples, but you also got to go to Nuremberg as part of a fellowship to study factory sounds. What was that experience like? It was fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that was more hands-on. That was the Siemens Corporation, and I just saw this opportunity to apply for a fellowship that combined art and industry, and it was six weeks in Nuremberg, Germany. And I thought, okay, I'll go, I'll record, I'll sample, I, I'll compose the work. And I thought, like, this is so obvious. Everybody's going to come up with this idea. But fortunately, I was awarded the fellowship, and the person who ran it, a, a brilliant guy named Jens Cording, said, like, no, yours was the only one who was like that. So they put me in an apartment. They would bring me to all different factories. You know, some were very clean. Some were very quiet. Some were very noisy. Some were very stinky. The level of different kinds of sounds happening at once you know, some were repetitive, some weren't. It was just fascinating. Even the quiet in the silent, unworking factories, there was the sound of lights buzzing. There was, you know, like layers and layers of paint. You're reminding me of an early fascination I had with machinery. Uh, at some point in high school, I began reading Kurt Vonnegut's book, Player Piano, and towards the beginning of the book, there is this description of what I think it was Thomas Edison's factory and the protagonist taking in all of these old machines, these lathes, punch presses, sweepers, um, braiding machines, and really celebrating the lively music that these strange machines are creating in such wonderful detail. And I, uh, wow. It's really beautiful. Um, but I was inspired to write a percussion ensemble piece based on this passage, and you know, I, uh, I did, and I listened to as many examples of these sounds that I could find, and so I I share this in this interest that you have, this fascination with machines and the strangely beautiful sounds that they create. Yeah, and like the incidental polyrhythm. Yes. Yeah. Are so fascinating. Uh, and, you know, I've written about this. So I composed a piece for my ensemble that was presented in a kind of ad hoc factory, huge factory that was used to repair turbines for the Deutsche Bahn. And it was just fascinating. It was like the audience was CEOs that Siemens oh. invited just to kind of show off their arts program. There were the factory workers. There were like the local anarchist contingent. <laughs> and just to like be able to spend six weeks there observing all the sound and then present the concert in the factory, it was kind of a life-changing experience. And then the piece that's called EWA7 is mm -hmm. kind of a signature piece that we've performed all over the world and, you know, have performed quite recently. It's kind of a, a workhorse for me. And it's generally myself and my partner, who's a guitarist, Roger Clyer, and often a different drummer. But when we play in Europe, most frequently Chris Cutler. The piece is very different wherever we play. And, you know, the samples are the same, but mm -hmm. 
we also adapt to using all different kinds of metals that we find in the locale, wherever it is. Yeah, I wanted to ask about your band. Do you feel like a lot of your ideas come from playing together? Or is that a space where you you all feel very free to experiment? It really helped me develop my aesthetics over the years. When I first moved to New York, it was such an exciting environment, and there was so much live music happening, you know, in my own neighborhood, in the East Village and the Lower East Side. It's become a little overcrowded. You know, there's a lot more composers, and there's a lot less venues. And the impulse to get that scene started has kind of come and gone, so it's a little bit more established now. But being there, not exactly for the beginning, but towards the beginning was extremely exciting. So after having studied composition, I I didn't really expect to have my primary source of music making and creativity writing notated music. So performing with my own band, both things that are written and written in a collaborative sense and improvised was really important to me. And I think I bring that sense to compose music as well. I just got kind of drawn back into composed music. Yeah. I see a connection between you and someone like John Zorn, who would put together bands like Masada or Naked City, yeah. and have that band, Life, One Life, <laughs> and then yeah. a compositional life. John Thorne was an important mentor and, and a model to me, just because he does so much. Right. And, you know, he does it with full dedication. And he's also created a lot of opportunities, not just as a model, not just like to show that you can do that, but also... He's put out many of my CDs and, right. and featured a lot of my performances and curated, you know, my work at the Stone. Did one of those pieces include the manufacture of Tangled Ivory? Yes, in yes. a way. I mean, that okay. was that goes way back to when I first moved to New York. The manufacture of Tangled Ivory was written for the Festival of Radical Jewish Culture, sometimes called the Festival of Radical New Jewish Culture at the old knitting factory on Houston Street. So, you know, he asked me to put together a concert, and moving to New York was kind of emotional for me because I moved to the same area that my grandparents Mm -hmm. moved to, and they were, you know, basically poor kids. I mean, my grandmother moved here when she was 14 from Poland, and I think she was expecting to go to high school like a regular kid and looking forward to it. And she worked in the factory. I think, you know, it it was so difficult for them. And people talk about making sacrifices now, but they were really making sacrifices and, you know, allowed for the next generation to have much easier life and allowed for me and, and my siblings to be able to pursue art. So I was really struck by the contrast in our experiences. So I wrote this piece that is, it has a lot of factory influence and a lot of metal because my grandfather was a uh, scrap metal dealer. His story has it, went up and down 2nd Avenue with a cart and a donkey. Imagine that. And now I live on 2nd Avenue. 
And, you know, I've been here for quite a few years. I have seen no donkeys. So uh, that piece was very important to me. And I gave a tape of it to the Bang on a Can Festival. And they said, oh, we'd like to program it. Mm. And I said, oh, great. And they said, but we would like for the Bang on a Can All-Stars to play it. It was important for me to interpret it with my own group. And they said, well, no, we really want our group to play it. And if we play it, it'll get a lot of exposure. We can record it. We can tour with it. So I said, okay, you can play it. And then they were completely good for their work. They recorded it. They toured it. It was a great source of visibility for me. And it was also an opportunity for which I needed to go back to my more traditional training as a composer and create the score and create the part. And, you know, honestly, I thought I would never have to do that in such detail again. But it was kind of a very important loop in my artistic history and musical history to be able to go back to what I had studied and make use of it.
I want to ask about sampling maybe more broadly first. Um, I think it's such a cool compositional tool to use because it can afford so much. It can afford reuse and remixing of materials, but it also can afford historical illusion and amongst other things. I'm wondering what drew you to sampling initially. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes people take a while to find the perfect instrument for that. And piano is very important to me. And I also got involved with uh, playing synthesizers, both in college, you know, with mode modular systems and smaller, more portable things that became available in the 80s. But the sampler, once it became affordable, you know, after the Fairlight, after the emulator, it just made such a huge difference in my music because I could just manipulate these small bits of sound. I could use traditional sources like piano and relayer them and retune them, or I could use something like these radio sounds. And being able to use the interface of a keyboard, which is familiar and performative, you know, there's established technique for it that I had already studied. This is just the perfect instrument for me. You know, both first things like the manufacture of Tangle Ivory that are very structured and for more abstract improvisation. The digital sampling technology got cheaper and I had something called a DE200 that was a boss rack mount sampler. I think its memory was about a second, wow. literally a second. Wow. I know it's hard to imagine now. But with this little one-shot sampler and a Fostex home eight-channel recorder, I made a record. I had a deal with Profile Records, and I made a 12-inch single that had a little sample bit of a Weber and Cantata, which I reversed, some text from a record that was Nicholas Lenemsky oh, analyzing La Mer, a little bit of doo-wop, <laughs> And then some talking from this bizarre Planet of the Apes record. It's funny, Profile Records was going to put this out, but this was before there was kind of an established protocol for getting sampling rights, but after people had already been sued. Right. So they got cold feet and didn't put it out. But this kind of got me on the road to sampling. The first part of the manufacture of Tangled Ivory was very specifically for the ASR-10. The ASR-10 is pretty obsolete now. So one other thing I've learned is if you want to use this kind of technology, you have to be mentally and emotionally prepared for your piece, for your music to be a little ephemeral. I mean, fixed media kind of gets rid of that problem. And I write plenty of pieces with fixed media, but I love having people being able to actually play the sample just the way they would be playing a piano. I want to turn to a piece you wrote called Detroit Industry, based on the Diego Rivera frescoes at the Detroit Institute of Art. Um, I loved reading your program notes. You mentioned in them that you had a very early fascination with these frescoes and that you had prints of them hanging up at your dormitory. Could you tell me a little bit about how this piece came about and the process of writing it? New Music Detroit contacted me and said they'd like me to write a piece. 
So, you know, I remember being like, I don't know, 16-year-old freshman, and the only decoration in my room is the, the art that I bought at the student union and having this great image from Detroit industry and, and just the influence of industry as art. And I told them, oh, I'd really like to write something inspired by those Diego Rivera frescoes. And it was interesting because they said, oh, you know, we're performing it in the frescoes. And I'm like, what? Wow. And they said, that's where the performance series is. At Diaz in the Diego Rivera courtyard. So this was kind of a dream. I mean, it was really fun. And I also like this concept of the piece being a sum of its parts. So different sections are inspired by different panels of the murals. Right. Um, and this isn't a suite like pictures at an exhibition or George Crumb's A Little Sweet for Christmas. This is um, taking in the entirety, the, the scale of these murals. And you also drew from the process of how they were made starting with the sketches and... Yeah, yeah. So some some things would be appear very skeletally, both visually and musically, and some things would be much more orchestrated. The process of also how the frescoes are created is pretty fascinating and does not allow any time for error. It, you know, it's a really interesting project to dig in his historically, what was happening with Diego, what was happening with Diego and Frida Kahlo. You know, I think there was probably a lot of tension, and I I would kind of, this sounds maybe a little reductive, but I would assign an instrument for each of them. So it's like a conversation between the two, because there's also the human element of who created this mural.
have to ask you about your opera, War of the Worlds. I'm deeply fascinated by this piece. Um, and it sounds like you had a lot of fun writing it. Could you tell me a little bit about how this piece came about? It was one of the most fun projects I've ever done. Yuval Sharon is this incredible opera director, very innovative, and the approach is always something unexpected and wild. So I was actually going to L.A. for a premiere of a piece for two pianos and electronics, and I thought, wow, I've never met Yuval. Yuval used to live in New York, and somehow we had crossed paths on email, and I wrote him an email that said, I'd really like to meet with you when I'm in New York, and he goes, oh, by the way, I don't know if the L.A. Phil has gotten in touch with you, but I was interested in you writing this <laughs> opera. Wow. I don't know, it was like some beautiful coincidence. The structure of the opera is a little hard to explain. It takes place for the most part in Walt Disney Concert Hall. But like War of the Worlds, it is centered on an account, you know, in the original War of the Worlds, the radio show, of a Martian attack. Now, the radio show was supposed to be a concert of dance music. So I drew on this idea of having something that sounds just a tiny bit influenced by what you would hear on the radio in the 30s, you know, lively, somehow dance-related music. And Sigourney Weaver was our MC. So she would get these reports of what was going on as the Martians invaded Los Angeles. The reports were coming from three public sites and they were in parking lots in downtown Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So you could buy a ticket. Well, it sold out. You couldn't always buy a ticket <laughs> to go see one of the three performances of War of the Worlds in Walt Disney Concert Hall with the L.A. Phil, or you could go for free and sit in these outdoor parking lots and see one aspect of the Martian attack. So part of the initial inspiration for picking these sites for the Martian attack was air raid sirens. So there's still air raid sirens dotted all over Los Angeles. And we took these air raid sirens and retrofitted them with speakers from Myers Sound. So they sound incredible. So these would broadcast the sound of the Martians. And this, again, one of Yuval's wild ideas, they were kind of suspended in a glass box. That's incredible. In Disney Concert Hall. So the whole of the concert would be at each site, but the Martian sound would come through the air raid siren. And the idea was also that the Martians had been hiding in these sirens over the years. <laughs> Seventy years later, they came out to attack. That's so wild. Um, you use samples for this project, too. I did a lot of sampling to prepare to write it. Like, mm -hmm. I worked very closely with the musicians who are in the La Serena Ensemble, which is what we call the trio that represented the sound of the Martian. Right. So me and Matt Howard, who is the percussionist, recorded a lot of percussion sounds that I used later that he played live. You know, a lot of extended techniques, a lot of things he specialized in. There's a lot of very specific sounds for the soprano, who is Gila Flitman. 
And uh, I worked a lot with the pianist, pharmacist, cellistist, <laughs> cellistista, Joanne Pierce Martin. So there was a lot of sampling that happened, but the sampling was used more for compositional reasons, which is another great use of the sampler. Garcetti has just arrived to address the situation. Mr. Mayor? Just outside these walls is utter chaos. And if you are listening outside, find a stick, find a broom, anything to defend yourselves and our way of life here in Los Angeles. Why in God's name are those bells ringing? Wait a minute. Ready to strike. The aliens are now in sight. Three of them. The first, crossing the concrete banks of the LA River. I can see it from here, wading through the aqueduct. It stands as high as the tops of the skyscrapers. The smoke comes out. Black smoke drifting over the city. People on the streets see it now. They're running towards the east. Smoke spreading faster. The street city hall. Smoke, smoke's crossing Broadway. Hill.
Jenny, could you share some things that you're working on right now? I just finished kind of a fun piece for an octophonic, which is an eight-speaker cello setup mm. for the cellist Johannes Moser. This was just recorded. He is based, I think, both in Germany and Austria. And this also involves some of the jam radio signals, like mm. seen as this bed in eight speakers. Part of the idea is, you know, he will be playing like Elgar cello concerto with any number of orchestras. But before the concert, he sets up these impromptu octophonic concerts in the lobby. So it's like incidental music that people just happen upon. And my big project, which I've just cleared out time for, is this song cycle for the L.A. Phil, which will actually, I believe, be performed by Wild Up, which is Chris Roundtree's great new music group. The L.A. Phil has a big new music marathon, and that will take place April 9th. And Pauline Kim Harris, a great violinist, is going to imminently release Long Waves and Random Pulses, mm. which is another piece that is influenced and inspired by jammed radio signals. But she recorded actually an acoustic version that I wrote. So it originally existed in two forms. One was fixed media with violin, which she has recorded for me in a beautiful version for exotic release that will be out eventually. But first, there will be a uh, all acoustic violin version that will be on Sono Luminous, which I think is being released in October. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Annie. It was a pleasure. I want to thank Stephen Rawson for that wonderful interview with Annie Gosfield, and I want to thank Annie Gosfield for being a guest on Relevant Tones, and, uh, well, for writing such wonderful music as well. I've been a fan for a long time, and it's wonderful for her to be on our program. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org.